Hello and welcome to the Friday, April 1st, We're No Fools edition of On Iowa Politics. <laughs> Support provided by New Pioneer Co-op, celebrating 50 years as Eastern Iowa source for locally and responsibly sourced groceries with stores in Iowa City, Coralville, and Cedar Rapids, and online through co-op cart at newpi.coop. This week, a historic week in the Iowa legislature, ballot challenges, and more likely than not. But first up, as fired up as the Democratic National Committee appears to be about changing the presidential nominating calendar, voters, Democrats included, are meh. A national poll of more than 2,000 registered voters by Morning Consult found that 27% said Iowa and New Hampshire should retain their respective first-in-the-nation statuses. Or is it stati? 22% <laughs> said Iowa and New Hampshire should be booted from the leadoff positions. Among Democrats, it was an even split. 27 for Iowa and New Hampshire and 27% for giving other states a chance to lead the way. The most support for retaining the current calendar, I guess no surprise, came from the Northeast and the Midwest, uh, where 35% and 29% respectively endorsed the status quo. Democrats typically don't stand on status quo, but inertia is a powerful force. <laughs> Hi, I'm James Lynch of the Cedar Rapids Gazette, and with me today are Jared McNett of the Sioux City Journal. Good morning, Jared. I'm a fool to do your dirty work. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Aaron Murphy, State House Bureau Chief for the Gazette. Good morning, Aaron. Uh, this We're No Fools edition, uh, I was unaware of that, and that puts a lot of pressure on me that I was not prepared for. Uh, you can fool some of the people some of the time. Huh? <laughs> and Gazette Opinion Editor Todd Dorman. Good morning, Todd. Good morning. <laughs> This week in the legislature, it was a historic week in the Iowa legislature. For the first time since the bottle bill was enacted more than 40 years ago, a bill to fix the deba was debated on the floor of either the House or Senate. In this case, Aaron, it was the Senate that took up a bill to change the rules for returning our bottles and cans and getting our nickels back. One lobbyist supporting the bill told me, it ain't pretty, but it's the best shot. I'm not sure if he meant the best shot to improve the bill, extend its life, or to kill it, time will tell. <laughs> Aaron, it, it was largely a party line vote. What what was the what were the pros and cons for this, and, and how will it change our um, nickel deposits? Yeah. So before I get to that, when you say what you heard from a lobbyist, I, I got to share what I heard from one too, who was uh, um, uh, involved in the a bottle bill as a as a client stakeholder, and he said, uh, "Well, it looks like they're going to pass something. I don't know if it's any good for anybody, uh, but they're going to pass something." So that was the excitement level uh, from that particular lobbyist for this bottle bill. Um, I'll, I'll say first and foremost to the people listening, I, I, it probably won't have a lot of visible changes from the consumer side of things, um, the way Iowans go about, uh, you know, purchasing and then um, if they choose to returning their their bottles and cans, uh, probably wouldn't change a whole lot. The goal of it is uh, the stated goal, anyways, is to uh, create a system and, and specifically get some more f money flowing in the system that would incentivize uh, more um, redemption centers, more places for Iowans to return their recyclables. But the problem is it also 
uh, continues to, and uh, I think even expands the ability for grocers to opt out of the program. So that's, you know, you're, you're, you're essentially rem- allowing for at least the, the, the uh, reduction of those types of places to return your bottles and cans while, while trying to boost redemption centers in other forms. Um, there's, there's uh policy in there that uh, tries to kind of clear the way for I, I, I can't remember the term they call my I, 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 I sound stupid saying this but I want to say like an e-return system or, or you know an automate automated there, there we go that's better automated return system uh, where you know you toss them into some kind of uh, container and it, it counts and, and, and eventually then you know, pays you for those bottles and cans that you just poured in. Um, there's there's legislation in there to try and get those kinds of things going. And also uh, it, it increases the fees that distributors pay to, again, put more money in with the idea that if there's more money in the system, then more redemption centers will be willing to uh, open or continue to operate. Um, because that uh, the problem is there is that's a pretty narrow profit margin uh, when you talk to those places that do that at these redemption centers. So that's the stated goal. That's what the Republicans who work to pass it in the Senate say it it, it will do. Um, you have others and mostly Democrats, but it, this isn't universally beloved of, among Republicans either. But um, the critics will say that it, it won't do any of those things. And in, in fact, if anything, it will weaken and, and lead to the ultimate demise of the state's recycling program because it'll make it harder for for Iowans to find places. They, they don't believe that funding will increase the number of redemption centers, and ultimately Iowans just won't have enough places to take back their bottles and cans. So, And one of the arguments for a number of years from, well, grocers and others has been that in cities, you have curbside recycling. You can just put your cans in there. You don't need this whole deposit and redemption system at all. Um, curbside recycling is not uh, as available in some of the rural parts of the state, which are a large part of the state. Um, and, and, and so, I mean, it seems like uh, the one change on the consumer side in this approach is that the convenience that you can't take them back to, or you probably won't be able to take them back to the grocery store. Now there may be uh, a truck sitting in the parking lot at the grocery store where you can drop off your cans and bottles, or there may be reverse vending machines, those sorts of things. But um, yeah, it, uh, um, if it's not convenient, the question is, will Iowans, you know, make, the effort to return the cans and bottles or will we go back to throwing them in the ditches? Cause that leads to another quick point on this is for, for the, even now that the many Iowans who, who don't return their bottles and cans, who just throw them in, in their recycling bin. So there's money out there in, in the program because you know, those, those deposits, those nickel deposits aren't, are not being redeemed. And there are some legislators who'd like to see that money that's, uh, uh, out there in the program be collected by the state. And then, then the question becomes where to put with it, which is surprised. That's, that's where the disagreements start because you, you know how lawmakers get when there's a big pile of money to, to be had. Um, one proposals, you know, Democrats propose putting it into like some kind of recycling program fund and, uh, Republicans had proposed putting it back into the taxpayer relief fund. Um, so that's another element of, of this that's that's helping to keep this bill from 
getting passed in both chambers and on to the governor. Yeah, that's one of the the oddest uh, approaches to me is uh, putting the the unredeemed the funds from the unredeemed cans in the taxpayer relief fund. I mean, this isn't a tax, uh, so uh, I'm not sure why it should go in there. But um, yeah, you know, we Republicans uh, love those putting everything in the taxpayer relief fund so that we can <laughs> return it to Iowans. Right. Um, yeah, Todd, I was going to ask you. So, assuming that this gets through the House and the governor signs it, will this be the last time we have the bottle bill on our legislative bingo card? Well, it's probably the last time for a while anyway. I, and I'm still a little bit skeptical they're going to come to an agreement. It, you know, I mean, you look at the, these bills and the winners are, you know, retailers and the distributors and the beer distributors, at least in the House bill. And uh, the redemption centers get a much needed boost in there in the money that they get. Uh, and they've been, you know, lobbying for that for a long time. But the, you know, the losers in this are consumers because the convenience factor, especially in a rural area, I don't know how far you'll have to drive. I guess there's some sort of mile. Is there still miles limits in in the bill where you have to have a redemption center within so many places? I guess because they're getting rid of the retail component. Within a day's horse ride. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, a day's horse ride or, you know, a short plane trip. But uh, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. I'm, I'm sure they're hearing from a lot of Iowans that don't, that don't want that to happen. And so, I mean, you know, it's not unusual for Republicans to side with business, but in this case, it's a, it's a, they're tweaking a, a pretty popular law and, you know, the only people that are really being harmed are the, are the, you know, folks buying beer and soda at their local grocery store and can't take the cans back. So, that that may be a compelling reason to just boot this down the road again, but you know it's 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 possible that the Senate and the House will come to an agreement and do something, but I don't think I don't think you know whatever they do is going to be popular with the lobbyists that have been working on this for years, but it's probably not going to be that popular among among you know, their constituents. Yeah, Aaron, um, it sounds like the House and the Senate aren't agreeing on much these days. <laughs> Is the bottle bill on that list of things that they don't want to agree on? Uh, yes, with an uh, with an asterisk. It it has been similar to other big bills, ones where the House is running its bill and the Senate's running its bill, and uh, two ships passing in the night, sort of thing. Um, but it, this is the one where just uh, late this week, Speaker Grassley told us that. Um, and they had actually had their version on their debate calendar Wednesday, uh, Tuesday and Wednesday. They pulled it off both days. Um, and he said the reasons as we decided on that one, that let's give it a little more time, give it a little more attention, try to get something closer to what the Senate can agree with us on. So so they're at least making an attempt on that one. Um, would love to hear that they're making <laughs> similar efforts on other big bills. So I'm not worried about yes. still being <laughs> here for my birthday in mid-May. Uh, but... <laughs> Uh, they're at least on the bottle bill trying to trying to come together. It's interesting that one of our fellow Capitol reporters overheard a lobbyist explaining the Senate bill to Representative Brian Losey, who's running the bill in the House. He seemed unaware of what the Senate was up to with their their bill. Um, and and, yeah, that's and she great. overheard this lobbyist like basically point by point going through the Senate bill with him. Um, and so when he was asked about the Senate bill that passed, uh, he 
offered a, a very vague uh, statement that probably could have applied to pretty much any bill. Uh, <laughs> you know, just sort of a general, uh, we'll look at it uh, sort of yeah. uh, approach. Yeah, borrow Governor Reynolds' line, we'll wait to see it in its final form before we comment. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. He's learning. He's learning. Jared, uh, one of the things this bill, the Senate bill would do, would make a a misdemeanor for someone to redeem a container obtained outside the state, uh, containers that are not subject to the Iowa deposit law. And that's something that always comes up in these bottle bill debates, the thousands of cans, horse trailers full of cans that come across the borders. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I've heard that more than once. Uh, (laughs) Redemption centers don't have time to examine every container to make sure it's eligible for the nickel uh, refund and end up paying for foreign cans and bottles. So any chance that South Dakota and Nebraska will take Iowa to court for interference with interstate commerce? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, if it's all of a sudden going to be a misdemeanor to redeem cans that come from out of the state, I'm uh, going to have to make some calls to all my family (laughs) back in uh, Kansas City who give me bottles and cans whenever I uh, go back home. Maybe I can go on like a Smokey and the Bandit S run with like cans and bottles or something and still get my redemptions. But I I really have a hard time imagining that that particular item will actually be enforced all that closely because the Des Moines Register had a story in I think December two years ago about how like some of the Iowa code that you know requires these retailers to take containers back was pretty pitifully enforced. And so I have a hard time thinking that a new wrinkle of like a similar kind of thing is going to have that much more teeth to it either. Like, are you going to have like security guards at like redemption centers (laughs) checking every single can, you know, with a fine tooth comb? I I just don't know how that's going to work in any real way. One of the proposals, and I don't know if it's still in the bill, was that cans and bottles would have to have a unique um, uh, UPC code, uh, you know, product code. And so they could, because I know some of the larger redemption centers have scanners that can, you know, they just feed the cans and bottles in and it scans and it reads the code so they know that it's an Iowa can or bottle. But I'm sure a lot of these smaller um, redemption centers don't have that sort of equipment. And yeah, they're they're not going to eyeball thousands of cans every day. Um, it well, like- they'll just uh, pick out the the cans that you know, trip the, the system as being from out of state. And then they'll take a DNA test off the can from where you drink out of it. And then they'll, <laughs> you know, they'll, they'll track you down. God, it's a ter- this is just, it's such a terrible idea. I don't know what, <laughs> anyway, it's, yeah, let's create a crime, a new crime for punishing it's a new show, Dog the Bounty Hunter, chasing down cans and bottles, scuffalos. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The aluminum files. I mean, something like that. Yeah, it would be, uh, uh, what is it, Law, Law and Order Aluminum? <laughs> yeah, that would be. Well, and then the the British spinoff would be Law and Order Aluminium. Aluminium. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Okay, moving right along here. Smoke and or fire. The March 18th deadline for state and federal office was followed by a flurry of folks filing challenges to candidates' nomination petitions. There, It seemed to me there were more than usual challenges. Um, 
uh, challenges are not unusual, but it seemed like there were more than usual. The whole process is rather arcane inside baseball. But uh, fortunately for us, Aaron was there for hours and hours of entertainment uh, as he followed these proceedings, the dramatic twists and turns. And it's not really over, is it, Aaron? Yeah, God bless him. We had so much fun. They decided to keep the party going. <laughs> so, uh, and this is one of those things. I apologize to everyone listening. I apologize to my fellow uh, colleagues here on the podcast because this is one of those things that it is really hard to describe in simple terms. It, it, we joke it, to talk about the process a little bit here. I, this is one of those stories that you write where you feel like by the time you've just set the scene and explained the mechanics and the important background, you've already written like 20 inches worth of copy and, and you haven't even started getting into the. So, but so as short as version of this as possible is um, as James, you noted uh, uh, there were seven, we wound up with total uh, objections to candidates um, s- nominating signatures. You got to get so many signatures from the good people of Iowa in order to get yourself on the ballot. Um, And that varies depending on which office you're running for. Um, Only one of those objections was upheld for uh, Kyle Keel, who was a Republican who was hoping to uh, run in the primary against Marionette Miller Meeks over in the new first district. So his was the only one that was sustained by the panel and and he's not going to be on the ballot. Now, everybody else, uh, the, the objections were rejected. Asterisk on that being that uh, both Attorney General Tom Miller and Abby Finkenauer came out of that hearing uh, by the skin of their teeth. I mean, by literally, and, and and I'm using the word literally in the literal definition, literally <laughs> by a signature or two uh, in, in some cases. So they had just enough to eke out and and stay on the ballot um fast forward to uh thursday afternoon and we learned that now a a legal challenge has been presented over finkenauer's signatures um and and the reason that happened was um going back to that meeting on tuesday because um attorney general miller's signatures were among those being challenged. He he normally sits on that panel. The panel is usually the Secretary of State, State Auditor, and Attorney General. So when his were being challenged, he had to be replaced, obviously, and he was replaced on the panel by Lieutenant Governor Adam Gregg. So the political composition of that panel went from two Democrats and one Republican to one Republican and two Democrats. And what wound up happening is you had different votes uh, taken over the course of the day on the same issue. Uh, on, in a couple different cases. So so when Lieutenant Governor was Greg was on the panel, some signatures were rejected by a two-to-one vote with the Republicans voting to reject the signatures and the Democrat, Rob Sand, voting to accept them. And then when Attorney General Miller returned to the panel later in the day, those same exact issues were voted the other way with the Democrats, Miller and Sand, voting to accept those signatures and the Republican left, Pate, voting to reject them. So that's basically the basis for the legal challenge is, hey, you got this panel, they voted two different ways on the same set of issues. Um, Obviously, they're arguing that when it was two Republicans and one Democrat, those were the correct rulings. Imagine that. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And and so 
I, I'm no legal expert by any means, but I, so I have no idea where this is going. That seems to me it, there's more of a political element than an actual legal argument there, but we'll see where it goes. And that's the base for the legal challenge. And, and But it's interesting. It's high stakes because if a judge upholds that legal challenge, then Abby Finkenauer will be taken off the ballot. Well, Todd, let me ask you about that. I mean, I, I guess I have my doubts that the, the courts are going to throw anyone off the ballot. And we have two months until the June 7th primary for this, you know, for the courts to act. But what does this do to the Democratic, Democratic uh, primary? Uh, how does this, I mean, does it have any impact on the, or just will they continue business as usual until the courts rule? Well, I'm, uh, I'm with you. I don't, we've got this challenge commission that's supposed to, you know, be the arbiter of these things. And I, I really believe that a district court judge is going to be loath to sort of walk into that and, and rule one way or the other. I think, you know, that's, I think they'll find that that's sort of where the, the buck stops on this and that she'll be on the ballot. In a weird way, I actually think it's kind of helping her because, you know, in a primary, your argument is, hey, I'm the best candidate to take on Chuck Grassley. Now you've got Republicans pulling out all the stops to keep her off the ballot, which allows her to say, look how scared they are of me. This is this is why they don't want me on the ballot, because they know I'm going to give Chuck Grassley the, the race of his life. So in a way, uh, it actually puts that aspect of her campaign, that argument in the spotlight. You know, it's, if, if I was just going to be an also ran, would they be going to the courts and and, you know, filing, um, I, um, what was the challenge, like 84 pages or, or something that they, they filed against her ballot uh, presence. So, yeah, I mean, I, I would doubt that it's going to do much to her fundraising or any of that. I think, I think you know, that kind of stuff will go on as usual. But as I say, it gives her a chance, you know, to say Republicans are, are very frightened of, of me as the nominee. Well, and there was a challenge against uh, Mike Franken, and then it was withdrawn. Um, so, you know, you can almost make the argument, yeah, they're not worried about him. Although the, yeah, right. that, that challenge was by a Democratic uh, attorney. So right. <laughs> I don't know if that, that applies there. or not. Yep. One of the interesting things um, about this is in the past, I've covered uh, these challenge hearings a couple times, and the panel has always been very liberal in accepting the petitions. They, they didn't want to throw anybody off the ballot sort of looking at what's the intent, you know, kind of the, taking the broadest interpretation. Now, this time, Paul Pate said the legislature changed the rules a, a little bit, and they didn't have as much latitude. In the end, that didn't seem to affect their decisions uh, for the most part. But, uh, Jared, uh, doesn't it seem like Campaign Management 101 would teach you to get a lot of signatures, a lot more than you need, uh, you know, in some of these cases, legisl- I think legislators need, what, 50 votes or 50 petition uh, signatures, Aaron? Is that right? Um, and for and, the for state house. Yep, that's correct. Yeah. And, and I mean, for governor, I think it's 3,500. I mean, th- these are not huge numbers. Um, and it just seems like if you need 50 signatures, you'd get 75. And, you know, so, I mean, doesn't this just seem like simple? Yeah. Uh- Step one, um, announce campaign. Uh, step two, get signatures. Step three, uh, money. Um, yeah. <laughs> so it's, yeah, it's not a good sign when even, like you said, James, some very, very low thresholds aren't getting cleared. That's not a good sign for, like, you know, 
how fervent people are in supporting you necessarily. And then it's also not good when stuff like this comes up because then it makes it way much more dangerous for you to be challenged if you're barely above the threshold anyway. Because if, you know, a signature or two does get tossed, then you're really in peril if you just barely got over whatever some of these thresholds are. So it's it's not uh, a good look for, for several reasons, I would say. Well, and, signatures and- aren't votes. Oh, go ahead, Aaron. Right. Sorry, I was just going to say, and I think it was you and I who were talking about this, James, and 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 some Democrats had been saying that part of the problems that that maybe some of their candidates had run into this year was their some of their conventions are still meeting virtually in, instead of in person, and and the, those were kind of goldmine places to get a ton of those signatures. Um, mm-hmm. And I mean that's that's maybe a fair concern and point, but but it's not like that's a surprise either. You knew that was the case, so you know that now you need to get out there and get those signatures some other way. I think that's the one valid point that's kind of made throughout this argument is it it, it and, and I agree with Jared. It, it's just you know you know the number. Why would you even flirt with with the you know the the bare minimum like that, knowing that an opponent could f- go through those with a fine tooth comb and 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 put your candidacy in trouble? I mean, why why even put yourself in that position? Just go out and get that many more signatures so so you know you're safe. It does seem like a pretty um, bad campaign misstep. And uh, to your point, uh, Aaron, especially with the you know, those uh, signatures at the uh, like county meetings and stuff like that. I know here in uh, Woodbury County, there's a little bit of a difference between the two parties because the GOP met in person here in Woodbury County. So that obviously gives you a chance to do some of that there. And um, the Democrats uh, had a virtual one. So that opportunity, you know, gets taken away then. Well, and Democrats may may want to start rethinking some of that or, or they're going to end up like they were in 2020 when they ran basically virtual campaigns while Republicans sort of said, eh, coronavirus, no big deal, and went out and campaigned in person. And at that time, I didn't think that was, I mean, from the, the pandemic was in a far different place than it is now. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think some of this virtual, clinging on to the, these virtual events is, is could be harmful in the long run. I, I, I get why people are concerned, but, uh, you know, transmission rates in the state are very low and there's we're in a different place so yeah it, it seems to me that while signatures on a petition aren't votes when you see someone like kim reynolds getting sixteen thousand signatures when she needs 3500 does show some level of broad level of support or at least a well-functioning campaign operation and uh, and I, I don't know you know maybe voters don't really pay attention to that don't follow that very closely but it seems like for people in the party, that's one thing they look at. If you can't get the you know signatures you need, um, you know they're going to question your viability as a candidate. Um, I don't know that this has any impact on uh, Todd, as you were saying, on the on the race in terms of what it does for Franken and Hearst. Uh, you know whether they can make hay out of out of Finkenauer's problems and and raise questions about whether she's going to be on the ballot, but, um, you know, it just, it, I don't know. I find it hard to believe that the court's going to toss her off the ballot. Um, on the other hand, a judge in California suggested that, uh, former president Donald Trump more likely than not, uh, committed crimes in, uh, obstructing Congress 
the certification of the election of Joe Biden. Uh, and he ruled that uh, Trump advisor John Eastman uh, had to turn over hundreds of emails he was attempting to withhold from the panel. Um, it, I guess in layman's terms, the judge said Trump probably committed crimes. Uh, Todd, as former Congressman Jim Leach used to say, perspective is difficult to apply to the events of the day. But is this significant, a turning point in the committee building its case against Trump? Well, I think it's a, you know, it's a, it's a big red flag warning for the, for the Trump loyalists and, and for the former president himself. I mean, you've got this January 6th committee that's sort of methodically piecing this all together. And I think they've done a fairly decent job so far. They're, they're still not getting a lot of cooperation. And there's going to be some more contempt citations and things like that. But uh, I mean, I think in the end, they're probably going to come up with enough evidence to, yeah, suggest that the former president was part of a, an effort, an illegal effort to overturn the results of the election. Then you hand it over to Merrick Garland, basically, and it's going to be the attorney general's decision in the Department of Justice on where we go from there. So uh, it's going to, it's probably going to take some more time. And, and, you know, you add this up with some of the other things that are happening. Some of the candidates that Trump has endorsed aren't doing so well. Uh, I've, you know, you read that maybe his crowds at some of the rallies that he's had aren't aren't what they used to be. So all of that taken as a whole may be that the, the efforts of some Republicans to sort of turn the page and, and distance themselves a little bit from from Trump land may be starting to starting to take hold. And, you know, you're also I think uh, the congressman, uh, Madison Cawthorn, was, has sort of been rebuked for his uh, his uh, description of all the Washington, D.C. orgies, which... Cocaine orgies. Co- cocaine orgies, which, you know, <laughs> what is this, the 80s? Uh, <clears throat> but so, so there, are, there are cracks in that sort of, you know, that Trump loyalty. They're small cracks, unfortunately, but who knows, maybe they'll lead to something, something bigger. Jared, uh, I haven't heard anybody make this argument yet, but um, do you think Democrats can make a case that um, continuing and completing the January 6th investigation is a reason to keep them in the House majority uh, to reelect um, Democrats or elect more Democrats? Because I can't imagine that Speaker Trump will allow the committee to keep operating. Um, so, Purely from like a, a politicking perspective, I think that would be a mistake. And uh, Pew Research even had a poll in uh, in February that I was looking at that showed uh, more Americans now say that Trump bears zero responsibility for what happened on January 6th. Uh, 32% today versus 24% then. And there were actually declines, obviously, in Republicans, but also some Democrats um, as well. So in terms of like purely cynical, like politicking to retain a majority, I don't necessarily know if this is the issue that's the, the meal ticket to keeping those numbers or even adding to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think they need to wrap, wrap it up, you know, by sometime this summer and, you know, you know, show what they've found. So I don't think they can take the chance of letting it overlap past the election because, it may never be finished then. And I think that's, you know, I think they think it's important. And I think a lot of Americans think it's important that we sort of have an accounting for, for what happened. might also be important to actually like, uh, like you say, wrap it up and, and issue their report. And, and before the, we get 
you know, neck deep into election politics um, if we're not there yet. Um, but I mean, it, it, they probably want to do that before it gets caught up in in the, the election, um, you know, and, and the summertime, you know, it's kind of slow time for Congress typically. Uh, so a big, you know, bombshell report would would get lots of attention. Um, and, and, and probably, I would think it would be good for Democrats, although I'm sure, uh, you know, the, the Trump loyalist would, uh, you know, use it to raise more funds and, and, uh, make their case that, you know, Democrats are, are trying to you know, ruin the country or whatever, whatever the latest complaint is. <laughs> well, that's it for this edition of on Iowa politics. If you enjoy the podcast, tell your friends and subscribe to us wherever you find the pod, your podcast. Fan mail may be sent to podcast at thegazette.com. Stay up to date on the Iowa Legislature by subscribing to the Capital Digest newsletter under the Iowa Legislature tab at thegazette.com. And don't forget that the work of everyone you've heard here today can be found on the pages and websites of the Quad City Times, Waterloo, Cedar Falls Courier, Sioux City Journal, Mason City Globe Gazette, Muscatine Journal, Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil, and the Cedar Rapids Gazette. Scarlet Runner will take us out. If you know an Iowa band or musician who should be on the podcast, send us a sound file and subscribe to On Iowa Politics. For Aaron, Todd, Jared, and our producer, Stephen, I'm James Lynch. Thanks for listening. Be well.
Get a daily update from the Gazette with our daily news podcast. Add it to your podcast player or your Alexa-friendly device to get a bite-sized local news update each day. Check it out at thegazette.com slash podcasts.